Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you're like me, you like knowing where your food comes from. On this week's show, we meet farmers who are doing everything from growing their own seeds to cultivating specialty mushrooms. We begin in Grand Isle, Louisiana, where we meet the Guerrero family of Grand Isle Sea Farms. Owner Marcos Guerrero and his son Boris welcome us aboard their compact bay boat for a morning out on the water to learn the process of oyster farming, Louisiana style. Then we visit Gourmet Mushrooms in Sonoma County, California. The Gourmet Mushroom facility is really more of a science lab than a farm. And what's the difference between beans and seeds? Portland, Oregon farmer Evan Gregoire joins us to answer that question. He's the founder of Portland Seed House, which maintains a seed bank filled with multiple varieties, each with their own flavor and story. We're getting to know our farmers and their delicious goods on this week's Louisiana Eats. In Grand Isle, Louisiana, the Guerrero family farms Louisiana oysters that have lived their whole lives without ever touching the muddy bottom. They do this by utilizing an innovative floating cage system, the first of its kind in Louisiana waters. I could not resist a trip to see the family-run Grand Isle Sea Farms in action. We joined Marcos Guerrero and his son Boris aboard their compact bay boat for a morning out on Caminata Bay. Okay, we're going to the farm. It's right there by Caminata Pass, uh, next to, in front of the island, close to the bridge, actually. It's a plot, it's actually, it's like a park that the uh, Port Commission uh, uh, with uh, wildlife and fisheries and uh, all the legislation a uh, legislator from Louisiana uh, make it happen because it was no legislation before so no one can have aquaculture in the state. The law passed I think in 2012 so in 2013 we started uh, doing the process, the paperwork and then uh, actually in 2013 we were approved and started doing the infrastructure did the anchors on, this, on, on the bottom of the sea, put the submarine lines and all the infrastructure that we need in order to grow these oysters. Tell me a little bit about the seeding process that you take part in. Okay, uh, we buy the seed from the uh, hatchery and then we put it in a nursery on land, in a nursery on land. After they reach four millimeter, we start putting it in the field. And, and from that time, it takes about 10 months probably to be uh, market size. 
And uh, the beauty of this one is that uh, the, way, the place where we are gave this uh, unique flavor to these kind of oysters. Uh, the bay is so rich in flavors, wild uh, flower oyster, herbs inside, the sea salty, the texture is, 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 is great what happens over there at the bay. And being on uh, 12, the first 12 inches of the surface, that, that's where the most of the nutrients of the sea are. So they grow faster that way. Uh, they, are, they grow in cages. The cages protect them from predators, so we don't have to, uh, to worry about that. They don't have to worry about predators. Now, in order to get this nice shape, we have to uh, flip the cages once a week. So that's a lot of hard work and take a lot of time because we have to wait until for a nice day, a day that is uh, not raining or it's not too many waves. They call uh, this drying position. It's in a drying, so the oyster get dry. So it prevents the bio falling to form and also uh, uh, incrustation the, on, on, the, on the shell. It prevents, so that's why you see the oyster coming later on so clean. Marcos, well, we're on our way to the site of your farm. Tell me a bit about your family's history, because I understand that you all are from Ecuador, I believe, and you've always been involved in various food businesses of one type or another. That's correct. Uh, originally from Ecuador, on my mother's side, we're also Italian, so we have kind of a mix of the both uh, continents. And uh, my son Boris here, my wife, and the other son Aldo, we all working together here at the farm. We have a little bit of experience with some shrimping industry before, uh, some farming also, organic farming. We always were uh, farming on the organic way. We don't like to contaminate our world. And that's another beauty of the oyster. They filter water. They filter up to 50 gallons each animal per day. So that's a huge machine filtering uh, bay waters, giving more life also to the, to the water, to the bay. Another beauty of being in the park is that uh, it's, it's permitted water by DHH. That means they come regularly and check the quality of the water. So our oysters really are certified, we could say, each one by DHH. As the boat slowed down and we began our approach to their underwater farm, I noticed several black devices about two feet in diameter floating on the clear water. Alongside of them were rows of white polyethylene plastic pipes jutting seven or eight feet out above the water. When you're going over traditional oyster beds in Louisiana, they're always marked by those white poles. So you have poles out here too. And is that to show people that this is an oyster bed so that they don't accidentally run their boats around in it? That's a good question. Boris can explain to you what happens here with the poles. Well, the, the, yeah, the, the poles are made for keep people out, but uh, it, it really doesn't stop them. People still come in here and fish and everything. And, and sometimes we get a little issue because uh, the hooks get stuck in the, the line and we grab it and sometimes we, you know, you know cut our hands because we, we grab where the hook is. So um, a lot of people do keep out though, and we, we tell them to fish around the poles. Uh -huh. But they still kind of they like to be right there in the you know next to the cages fishing because I mean it kind of the cages also create like a reef, yeah. so a lot of fishes around because there's like crabs and everything so they you know there's a lot of food around it. 
We, a good thing maybe to uh, tell is that uh, people uh, is not aware what is aquaculture marks. If you see the yellow post, that means aquaculture, just be careful. We have some signs saying they're underwater obstructions, but they don't, it seems to be that nobody reads those. Now, what are these, the black things that we see floating in the water? Can you explain to me what those we, are? We can go pick one up. Okay. <laughs> Forrest slowly navigated between the white poles taking us over to one of the black torpedo-shaped floating devices. Which one are you going to take? Second. All right. Stopping the boat, Boris and his father each grabbed one end of the device, pulling a heavy wire cage onto our boat, packed with growing baby oysters. So this is a cage, the floating devices. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, it's a fish. Okay, you see what we're talking about? Yes, exactly. Yeah, they, they look protection here. That this is a reef for them. So you can see, we put the seed. This. Oh yes. Um, There's the little babies. The hatchery produced is a mix. If you put it that way, between a diploid oyster and tetraploid. Once they mix the two, it comes a triploid. It's the same as the other oyster. The only thing is they don't spawn. It's like a, water, a seedless watermelon, the same nice watermelon but without the seed. That's the only difference. And that allowed us to sell it all year round, especially in summertime. Do we call it the summer crop because yeah. we can harvest during the summer without any problem. And not only that, they spend all their energy growing instead of also, you know, you know, spawning. Yeah, instead of spawning. Yeah. And, yeah. So uh, like the meat, it, it stays meatier for that case because all they do is grow and eat. <laughs> what, what dawned on me the first time I tasted one and understood what you all were doing out here is that this is the first time we've ever had a Louisiana oyster that didn't grow in the mud. And the currents. You see yeah. the currents? That's, that's another thing. There, we, we have plenty of wind, plenty of currents, and most of the waves are on top. So well, every time it passes one, it keeps them kind of clean. You know, not, not fully clean, but it helps. Every little helps. <laughs> the tidal action out here in Caminata Bay is another part of the assistance in your farming. Of course, and also the wind. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, the tidal, the oily water coming from those marshlands keep the flavor, the nice flavor of the oyster and the nutrients, yes. So each cage grows about 700, is that, what's the yield out of each cage? Yeah, we have it right now, uh, we're trying the amount that we can put in it, but uh, we know that, uh, for example, in other parts of Canada, they grow up to uh, a thousand each cage. So we're kind of uh, pushing a little bit, seeing, understanding also how it reacts, how, it, what, happen, uh, what happens here. So we put just 700. We have some of 800, we have some of 900 too. We never put a thousand, but we are trying of uh, trying and see what's the best uh, amount that it can hold. Well, you all are sh brave pioneers, that's the truth. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, we're here every day uh, thinking and uh, so many nights without sleeping, just thinking on what we have here. <laughs> it's, it's, sure. not, it's not too easy, but we got a great product, we got a great response. That makes us move forward, really. People like you coming here and having this uh, talk here, that's, that's fantastic.
a morning out on Caminata Bay with Marcos and Boris Guerrero of Grand Isle Sea Farms. Next, we meet a Portland, Oregon seed farmer who's working to make the Pacific Northwest a more delicious place, one seed at a time. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. Last summer, the Louisiana Eats crew was in Denver for Slow Food Nations, an event that celebrates slow and sustainable food systems through summits and workshops. While there, we met Evan Gregoire from Portland, Oregon. An avid seed collector, Evan created Portland Seed House in 2013, focusing on rare and unusual heirloom varieties. He's a faithful follower of the slow food philosophy, regularly attending conferences, including the biannual International Slow Food Conference in Italy, Terra Madre. When we spoke in Denver, Evan and I discuss the connection between beans and seeds and why they're often hard to tell apart. Even when I was in Italy, when I traveled to Italy, I brought beans back with me. And, you know, basically you can declare food or you can declare seeds. And I declared them as food, but at the same time, I came back and I was not going to eat them. I was coming back to plant them is because that's the thing. Beans are just very dried naturally, and so it's not a high heat process. And you can plant probably most of the beans that you get in the stores because they wouldn't be heated, treated, and they would just lose their nutritional values. So a lot of those beans, if they're not too old, will probably just go and germinate. And so that's life in, your, in the palm of your hand. And it's kind of a special, really interesting, super archetypical you know, thing that's in everybody. It has that, you know, that really that inner belief that you have um, those things that uh, we have to grow these seeds in order to establish civilizations. And so it's, it's something way deep inside you that I don't know where it comes from in me, maybe some ancestral, you know, back in Brussels in my hand, the sisterage, but uh, I have no farmers in my background. It's not like I come from four lines of farmers, you know, in a generational pattern. So it's just something we have to explore and then really dig deeper on. I've never met a seed farmer before, Evan. What does a seed farmer do? 
So seed farmer is basically somebody that, uh, you're a vegetable farmer, but you're taking the extra steps to isolate the, the vegetables um, so you can save the seeds and then uh, basically proliferate uh, more vegetables because that's essentially what you need. You need seeds to grow food. So that my, my whole thing is you know, the, no seeds, no food. And without local seeds, um, you know, that's really important too, is having a sustainable local food secure area that has its own local seed shed. So what I do is uh, I preserve heirloom and heritage seeds uh, for the uh, basically the betterment of diversity and biodiversity in, uh, in all of the United States and all over. Is there a holy grail of seeds that you're searching for? Is there something unattainable? Or conversely, what was your most exciting find? Well, in 2014, I went to Terra Madre. And Terra Madre is a wonderful um, slow food conference in, in Torino, Italy. And some of the things, they have Presidia items. And they Presidia items are basically products that have been established for many, many, even hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so some of the beans, actually, I brought back from uh, a Tuscan region uh, called the Panzerid bean. Um, and it's a 12, uh, 12 beans that grow in this Tuscan valley. And it's one of the village's beans. And it's the most spectacular you can make jewelry out of it. I mean, it's that it's that spectacular. It's mottled red, um, very crimson on one side, and then very white, um, shiny, glossy on the other. And so it has this dual tone pattern to it. But then it grows into these wonderful, fresh-eating uh, shelling beans, just like uh, some of the wonderful um, borlado types and things like that. But it's a very regional bean to a very exclusive family, a family's village region uh, in Italy. So that's one of the things is just finding those very unique things and those unique beans in, in, in Italy and in, in Tierra Madre and, and that and that's how Slow Food brought it all together for me essentially. How do you see your place in sort of saving the world? What is the thing that you do that gives the most back to you? Definitely seeing people uh, tell me that they're rocking with a certain type of bean or a certain type of tomato that I uh, sent to them in New Mexico or Florida or Maine or, you know, Sweden or, or anywhere because it's the bigger picture. I mean, we're, it, we're not, you know, you can't solve, you know, this problem in my lifetime, you know, in terms of I feel like this is a lot larger problem that's going to be, you know, it's, it's, there's a, I'm so bad with cliches, but there is a cliche that goes, goes like that. And, and it's just one of those things where you have to look beyond that. And so if we can all do our little drops in the buckets right now, in two generations, three generations, we'll be looking back at our generations going, you know, that's where they started seed saving. And that was the crux. And that was the pinnacle of, you know, the change. And even when we had a, a difficult time in the bureaucracy, you know, we still are, you know, huddling together and, um, there's so many wonderful cliches that you guys should throw out there about about seeds, but it's a uh, you can't bury us, you know, you can't bury us because we're seeds. They didn't know we were seeds or whatever. There's that Mexican proverb, and so that's really what it is. I mean, it's life, and it's um, when you touch it, it has an amazing energy and uh, amazing just um, just just it's that energy of life. Evan Gregoire of Portland Seed House in Oregon. Whether they're cooked up in a stir-fry or eaten raw as a snack, it's estimated that more than 150 million sugar snap peas are consumed around the world each year. This pervading variety of pea 
is actually a relatively new vegetable, created by accident by Dr. Calvin Lamborn in 1979. Known as the father of the snap pea, Dr. Lamborn spent his life perfecting this and other pea varieties, revolutionizing the industry in the process. Sadly, Dr. Lamborn passed away in August 2017. But we had the opportunity to talk with his son, Rod Lamborn, a cinematographer based in New York City who's working to maintain his father's pea legacy. I first asked Rod to explain how and why peas became Dr. Lamborn's whole life. Well, my father started back in 1969. He was given a direction to fix the distortion on the snow pea and what they came up with with the snap pea by crossing a rogue shell pea with a snow pea. And it wasn't without his problems either. There was, uh, you know, some internal struggle with this new class of pea. There were people in the company that didn't think there was any value with that. They tried to shut the program down multiple times. People had a hard time understanding that you could eat the pod. And I have a really distinct memory of being about seven years old in Twin Falls, Idaho, and telling my next-door neighbors that I was eating peas so that you could eat the whole pod, and them telling me, like, no, you really can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And being surprised, because, you know, I mean, as a kid, you don't tell an adult, like, I think you're wrong, Uh, I can't do that. But I remember my father saying that he had something there that was really special. And he persisted. When people tried to shut him down, I think he just doubled his efforts it took at least two generations to notice that the snap pea came out of this. And then an additional few years for there to become any kind of recognition. It wasn't until 1979 that the snap pea won an all American selection gold award for introducing a new vegetable. (laughs) That's something that doesn't happen every day. No, the gold award that was that he won is very rare. It's an extremely prestigious honor. And it took that for the snap pea to really start getting traction. He was really a visionary in so many ways. And after he has the original snap pea, he goes on to figure out how to make them grow in all sorts of astonishing colors and such. Tell us about where he went from the original green snap pea. He was working for a company when he developed the original sugar snap pea and they retired him early. So he was about 63 years old and they said, Oh, guess what? We're going to let you go. And he didn't like that. (laughs) He said, I'm not done. I want to keep going. And when he retired, he actually worked harder than he ever had in his whole entire life because he no longer had his laboratory, his research assistants, his lab techs, He had him, his notepad in his mind, and he was able to continue with what it was that he was doing, charting out plans of what to do for the future, and do it without a corporate entity telling him you can't do that. He was able to do things that increased pod productivity, that made it so the plants were more vigorous, produced more pods, could handle some of the pressures of insects and environment. 
and still excel. So his passion for peas actually accelerated. And his ability to do crosses and bring to market shortened. They say it usually takes 10 years from first cross to introduction to market. Four years, six years became our model. So we have this germplasm that's just fantastic. And we have all these different traits that we've been able to figure out the plants that have, they express the best part of these traits. And when you start taking all these different traits from peas that have never been crossed before, then you start getting things that you didn't expect. Like the maroon snap pea, the maroon snow pea. Like that's a color that didn't exist earlier, but it's a color that works within the boundaries of the genetics of the snap pea and snow pea. And every color has a different flavor. You know, when I'm talking to chefs in the farmer's market, if they like the purple, then I understand that they really get what's going on with food. They know how to take that purple and make it work for them. Do you have any stories about relationships between your dad and chefs that grew up over time? You know, my father had somewhat of a relationship with the late James Beard and had met and spoken with them and corresponded with them. But these current things that have been happening has been more my doing, where I've been meeting with chefs and introducing new varieties to them. And, um, you know, I learned pretty quickly in New York that I could, and I had done this. I, was, I, I, I went into Alain Decasse and I said, my father developed the sugar snap pea. I'd love to meet the chef. A couple weeks later, I'm in meeting the chef, which is kind of a strange thing to do. It's kind of like a little kid, you know, coming in, you know, it's like I fell off the potato truck. (laughs) And here I am in New York, like knocking on your door and saying like, yeah, my daddy did this. Can I come and talk to you? And I didn't know how to approach this, this restaurant, this most special restaurant that I'd ever been in before this time was Sizzler. And (laughs) so I'm going in with a suit and tie. I bring in the peas, I walk back into the kitchen, the whole kitchen stops with food prep and everybody gathers around and I'm able to present the peas, the new stuff that we have. And the chef took a bite and he said, how much do you got and how soon can I get it? What a great reward. Your dad must have been so proud of you. What did he have to say about these uh, bold marketing efforts for someone who perhaps had a sizzler palate previously? (laughs) Well, he wanted all the grandkids to go out and start doing this all around the nation. So (laughs) I was like, no, slow down. It works. But it's an awkward situation to be in. Um, And I got better at time uh, talking to chefs and understanding what to do. I have a great relationship with Rick Bishop, who is a very esteemed culinary grower that supplies the best chefs in New York City. And this really opened up many of the other restaurants, many of the other chefs. So my father developed a leafy green that took an academic curiosity and he turned it into something commercial. And Rick grew it out. The very first day he brought it to the farmer's market, Thomas Keller pounced on it. When he saw these peas, he took them back to his kitchen and his chef de cuisine, uh, David Breeden, decided to take them and to trim off the tiny little leaflets to garnish a soup bowl. And so you'd get these little tiny little specks of green and you would eat them and had a nice flavor of fresh peas. But it's a leaf that's so small. How did that get that flavor in there? 
that was the first presentation of the Lamborn Snap Creams. And interestingly enough, my father was so happy about that story. We were invited out to French Laundry to meet their team, the front of house and back of house. And we were at a barbecue. And my dad was telling that story to David Breeden. And I said, Dad, stop. Like, this is the guy that actually came up with that technique. Because he was trying to tell him, like, oh, and then per se did this and they put it together like this. And I said, dad, stop. This is the guy that actually came up with that idea. And he stopped mid sense and he said, Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a remarkable moment to be able to have that full circle. Cause here we are, you know, with French laundry. Yeah. Mind you, the fanciest restaurant that I'd ever been in when I was growing up is Sizzler. <laughs> and we're at the top, the best that you could possibly be. And here's my dad, and the chef sitting down, having a great conversation, talking about life, the history of the peas, and kind of the evolution of the peas. What an inspiration. Even though he got forcibly retired in his early 60s, he really didn't stop. Well, I'll start with this. My last conversation with my father was about peas. And it was a very peaceful conversation because I understood that that was my last conversation with him. And um, I was really happy to tell him that we've got it covered. We've got things taken care of here. And um, we just had a moment of silence. But um, so I'm, I'm honored to say that that was, it was so important to him that that's, that was, that was our world. I've been with my dad for the last 15 years at some degree. And now it's, the the burden rests on me. And let's just say that there are sleepless nights where I try to figure out, like, well, what am I going to do and how I'm going to do it? You know, and I've told I've told people this before. It's like there's a lot of me running around like my hair's on fire. Like there's so much stuff that I have to figure out. And the the sad points for me are when I want to call my dad and tell him, oh, guess what I figured out? Oh, guess what happened? Guess what we were able to do here? And, you know, I can't, like, those are the more somber moments where, like, he'd be so proud if he knew that we were able to, like, do this or manage that. Because he was very appreciative of the work that people did for him. Rod Lamborn, New York-based cinematographer and son of the father of the sugar snap pea, Dr. Calvin Lamborn. is considered to be the father of frozen food. Stay tuned, and we'll solve that mystery when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Are you a bar or restaurant owner, or do you work in a bar or restaurant? Get involved this year with Dine Out for Life, Crescent Care's largest annual fundraiser. This year, 
We're making a full week of it, starting on Sunday, June 2nd, with a dim sum drag brunch at Maypop, sponsored by Monkey Shoulder. They're taking brunch reservations at Maypop now, but every restaurant and bar can be involved in this year's Dine Out for Life. All proceeds from Dine Out for Life benefit Crescent Care, a full-service health provider with sliding fees designed specially for the hospitality industry. Learn more at crescentcarehealth.org. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. Who is considered to be the father of frozen food? Clarence Birdseye, who began America's frozen food revolution in 1924. Before his food career began, Mr. Birdseye worked as a fur trader in Labrador, Newfoundland. There, he observed the native Inuits freezing their just-caught fish as it was pulled from the icy waters onto the shore's frozen bed. To his delight, he discovered that months later when the fish thawed out, it was virtually as delicious as when freshly caught. He deduced the secret was super-quick freezing. Previously, food that had been frozen slowly was damaged when large ice crystals formed, rupturing the cell membranes so when defrosted, the water would leak out, taking with it the flavor and texture. Birdseye discovered that the secret to quick freezing involved the innovation of packaging the food before freezing it. The packaged food was held under pressure between two hollow metal plates chilled to 25 degrees below zero by the evaporation of ammonia. But even the packaging needed inventing. He's actually the guy who got the DuPont company to invent cellophane for cellophane wrappers. Then there were all sorts of other issues, like transportation, getting trucking companies and trains to have freezer cars, and getting stores to install freezers. Absolutely no infrastructure for frozen food existed before Clarence Birdseye. He accomplished all of that, but it took more than a decade. His concept of quick freezing actually ended up creating 168 different patents. The frozen food revolution totally changed the market for green peas. Previously, green peas were a precious commodity, only available during a brief time in the spring. But once they could be frozen, vine-fresh green peas became available year-round, creating a great demand for peas from green pea growers. Thanks to Clarence Birdseye, today we all eat frozen peas that taste almost vine fresh anytime we want. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Pass the peas like you used to say. Pass the peas like you used to say.
When Gourmet Mushrooms was founded in Sonoma County, California in 1977, it was a small farm selling specialty mushrooms to restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area. Since then, the company has expanded in size and distribution, harvesting eight different varieties of organic mushrooms for specialty food wholesalers, gourmet grocers, and restaurants all across America. As part of a four-day seminar at the American Harvest Workshop, Louisiana Eats was invited with chefs, journalists, and other food enthusiasts to tour the gourmet mushroom farm and learn about their cultivation process. Upon arriving, we were greeted by our guide, chef liaison Bob Engel, who began with a joke to break the ice. So my rule is this, if I don't know the answer to a question, I will make it up because that's the way my dad taught me. On the other hand, if I ever say I don't know, that means I can't tell you I'm sorry. I'd have to kill you if I told you. So I don't know means I can't tell you. And any other answer I give may or may not be true. You'll never know. Okay. So let's start the tour. We're going to head all the way around to the opposite corner of the building because I want you guys to see it in chronological order the same way that the mushrooms see it. Mind your step, this is agriculture. When we arrived at the building, we were welcomed by a pleasant aroma coming from a ribbon blender, mixing together ingredients called substrate, the food mushrooms need to thrive. So from this point here, you actually see both ends of the process. There we have raw materials coming in mostly sawdust. We're currently getting our sawdust from a lumber mill in Wisconsin. It's red oak sawdust. There are also some other things that we put in, um, soybean hull, uh, wheat bran, okara for some varieties, which is the spent material from making tofu. The process is entirely organic. There's no pesticides used. Uh, there's no artificial fertilizers of any sort. So at this point here, we've got raw materials coming in. This is a batch of materials being mixed up for the morning's run. At that end there, you can see all of those bottles. The mushrooms have been harvested from those bottles, and we're going to take that substrate out of there, goes into the dump truck, goes to a company that makes soil amendments. Everything that comes out of the farm goes back to the soil. We're going to go around the corner now and let's see what they're doing. Around the corner, we watched as a machine packed the prepared substrate into groups of small plastic bottles as they moved down a conveyor belt. People have been growing mushrooms on wood for thousands of years. And the original system was to drill a hole in a log, fill it with mycelium, and wait for that log to give the mushroom enough food that it will push up the part we want to eat. Somebody in the 50s in Japan started experimenting with using sawdust instead of a wood log. We're pre-chewing the food for the mushroom. Mushrooms that would take a year to start on a solid log, we can grow here in seven and a half weeks because the mushroom gets to envelop each grain of sawdust and just chomp up the food and do what it wants to do. We're not growing from seeds. Mushrooms don't have seeds. We're not growing from spores. We could 
but it's a little more complicated than we need to be. We're growing mushrooms from mushroom. We're going to take this sawdust substrate and we're going to sterilize it. That's a pressure cooker. 14 pounds of pressure, 240 degrees of temperature. All of our substrate is sterilized. So this machine here takes that sawdust from the ribbon blender that we started at, puts it into bottles one at a time. Using a plastic bottle, we can use the bottle over and over and over again. And even at the end of its cycle, when it starts to degrade or crack or something, we can still recycle it because it's not all that hard to clean. We also put a little divot stick down the center of each jar so that when we add the starter, the inoculant, that little bit of mycelium that we're going to start things from, instead of just growing from the top down, some of it drops down the middle and it grows from the inside out. Much more efficient that way. It's as if we're cloning, but we're only doing what Mother Nature does in the forest. You've heard that the largest organism on the planet is a mushroom. It's mushroom mycelium that runs through the forest floor so that if you start here and pick up DNA and walk a half mile that way and pick up DNA, you get the same mushroom. Each one of these bottles becomes a core of forest floor. We myceliate it with a little bit of the thread of the mycelium that we've kept either in a super cold, like minus 70 degree freezer, that's where we keep our library so we never lose track of these strains, or just on an agar-agar plate where we can pull a little bit off to start some spawn to start the next batch. So at this side here, we're bringing in raw materials. This door has a twin on the other side of the wall. The sterilizer goes all the way through the wall. So we load it up with these bottles, sterilize them, open it at the other end, let them cool down there. That's the cleanest area of the farm. Visitors never go there. So before we go through the second set of double doors, there's some foot baths. If you would, please, you just need to get the bottoms of your feet wet. Any one of those baths will do. In addition to the foot baths, everyone in our group was asked to put on hair nets to limit potential contamination. We all admittedly looked pretty silly, but before we had a chance to get self-conscious, we found ourselves at the germination room. There are over half a million bottles here. We hand harvest 65,000 bottles a week. It gives us about 22,000 pounds of mushrooms every week, 52 weeks a year. This bottle is a really good representation of what we're doing. If you see these bottles over here, they're almost entirely brown. That's the sawdust. Those bottles behind you, almost entirely white, that's the mycelium. This bottle here is partway through that process. You see the brown sawdust at the bottom and you see the white mycelium at the top. You also see a little bit of mycelium at the bottom where that hole allowed the culture to start growing more rapidly. That stuff there, this stuff here, this white fuzzy stuff, that is the mushroom. The thing that we eat is not a mushroom. The thing that we eat is the fruit of the mushroom. It is the apple, not the apple tree. This is the apple tree. When you pluck a mushroom in the forest, you're only taking the reproductive apparatus, the fruit body. It's there with its stem to get the cap up into the airflow and its gills to send spores out into the world. 
once that is over, its job is done and it starts to degrade. In this room here, all of these bottles can share springtime temperatures together and all of our varieties uh, can have pretty much the same kind of spring. But in order to get this mycelia to pop up with the mushroom that we want to eat, we have to do the same thing to them that Mother Nature does. We drop the temperature and raise the humidity. The mushroom thinks it's fall and it's time to get busy. So we're gonna go on now into the fall area. In the next room, the bottles of mycelium moved down a conveyor belt where they were turned upside down and the contents at the tops of each bottle were scraped off. So this machine here does uh, a process called kinkake. In cuisine, we steal words from the French that we can't say in English. Saute, roux, in the mushroom industry, we steal words from the Japanese because there's no word for kinkake in English. What it's doing is it's scraping off the top about half inch. It's the driest spot and it's the hardest spot. It's been exposed longest to the air. If there's any little contamination that's gotten in, it might be right there. So by scraping that away, we make it easier for mushrooms to come through. As we go around the corner, take a look at the modest but impressive level of technology. Every room has a CO2 meter on it. Every room has humidity and temperature dialed in for the mushroom that will give the best product. At the old farm, we had to take many different varieties, and it was like roommates at college. Uh, they might not like the same music, but they had to share a room. Here, we're able to take each mushroom and give it just the conditions that can make it flourish. As we go in, we're gonna sort of do a conga line. So we're, there's a corridor and you can go down the right-hand side and come back up the left and that way we all fit inside. <laughs> one by one, we proceeded into the first harvest room, packed with bottles abounding with beautiful growing mushrooms. So the, the room that you're in is Trumpet Royale, also known as a king oyster. As you walked in on the side, you saw some Nebradini Bianco. The reason it can share this condition is that is also an oyster mushroom. So both the majority of the mushrooms, the big ones in the center, Trumpet Royale, King Oyster, Pleurotus Oringii, and the ones on the white shelf over there, those are Pleurotus Nebradensis. That one grows wild in Sicily, and uh, it likes really cold conditions. So we actually cold shock that mushroom at a certain point in its development to give it the idea that it's under snow. And then we start it up again in the spring, as it were. The disco lights that you see on the uh, Nebradensis over there, that's a little experiment to see if they respond better to more light, if they respond better to white light or blue light. One of the great things about growing mushrooms this way with the very short growth cycle is that we learn quickly. We're data heavy. So if we get an idea about how to improve a mushroom, uh, we can test it in eight weeks. We can verify it in 16 weeks. We can see if we can scale it up in 24 weeks. And within a year, we've got a better mushroom on the shelf. 
if you were growing on logs with a one-year cycle, it would take you three or four years to learn that much information. So I appreciate you folks coming. Uh, I love showing this place off because I remember what it felt like when I first walked inside. And it's a really weird, strange, wonderful farm. <laughs> Thank you. Bob Engel, Chef Liaison at Gourmet Mushrooms. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find not only our full broadcast, but our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting and special videos from producers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay. That's all on poppytooker.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.